0: Some commentators cast the renewed fury of the Christian far-right in recent years as the final lashings out of an increasingly irrelevant fringe, while others see in this group a renewed and rising fascist tendency in American politics. In order to tease out these and other threads, we are investigating the Christian far-right. This
1: is All The Rage. Are those pelicans on your shirt? They are pelicans.
0: I'm, I'm impressed that you could pick out a pelican from so far away. I
1: have not been doing any birding, but um, I can sort of, the, the shape of the belly and the wings, and then on some of them, I can see sort of a, a longer beacon. I've seen my fair share of pelicans on the beach. So to, to be fair,
0: it's actually the same pelican over and over, but sometimes facing, sometimes it's shifted left to right and sometimes it's upside down so you know it looks like it looks like a multiplicity of pelicans but in fact it is just a pelican in multiple print
1: are you sure have you counted the the feathers and the shape i mean is it
0: i haven't but i was always pretty good at those uh what is it lifestyle magazine like see (laughs) see the five differences between these between these images But it would be a great Easter egg if there was just one on here that was just a little bit different, but nothing prompting you to look for it.
1: True. Like a duck or a goose or a a swan, perhaps?
0: Yeah. It it, it could be a silly goose.
1: Would you say that that shirt is more religious or secular?
0: (laughs) Well, I... I believe pelicans do have religious significance in, in a number of religions. Most birds do, right? Birds, birds frequently occupy um, positions of re- religious symbolism. There's a, great, there's a great book by Jeremy Minot called Birdscapes. And it's a book not about birds, but about the significance that birds have had in human thinking. So birds show up in, in philosophy in different ways, often just as examples, also in you know significant literature throughout the Bible, of course. Um, birds have been used as um, objects of divination, right? Augury, the word auger, which means like if that augurs well, right? Like that literally comes from uh, an ancient form of divination where you would um, – I think interpreting how birds are flying in the sky, like the formation of birds in flight –
1: no, it, they, they cut a bird open and would, would study its entrails.
0: Yeah, that as well. Oh, okay. That's also a form of augury. Okay, yeah. 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 I, I believe that the term is more expansive
1: than that. It, oh, you, okay, you are probably correct. I'm familiar with the
0: study. You should read the book. I should. You should read the book Birdscapes by Jeremy Minot.
1: <laughs> so, uh, growing up, the tradition that I grew up in um, – we were taught that the phrase, a little birdie told me, uh, is in reference to um, demonic influence, that the birdie is representative of a uh, demonic spirit. So we were, we were told never See, to say. That's interesting
0: because we all know that serpents are representative of demonic spirits.
1: And, and, no, isn't and serpents a- eat birds. I don't know if there's a connection there.
0: Well, in Mexico, birds eat the serpents.
1: Oh, fair. Okay.
0: Like, I think that comes up in the book. Isn't isn't the phrase, a bird told me, a reference to Ecclesiastes? Perhaps. You know, don't, what is it? Don't curse the king, even in the privacy of your own chambers, because uh, a bird uh, of the air might take word
1: to him that's right. or something
0: like that. Yeah.
1: yeah, that may be where it came from. And so we would have interpreted that as, uh, you know, the demonic the demons might tell on you the demons who who undergird the um the systems of of the world of the power structures of the world will will carry that so which is why you never say certain things out loud right because once it's out there oh you interesting. know demons can then hear that and so like if you have plans of whatever sort especially you know there are certain things that you just once they leave your mouth you know um, even in the privacy of you know your home or your room, demons can carry that information and thwart them.
0: I do remember in my you know brief stint into like zealous evangelicalism, reading up on you know demonology and um, obviously you know the 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 popular Christian fiction Frank Peretti and Randy Alcorn and um, and so on. But one of the things that they would emphasize is demons are hyper-intelligent because they're effectively immortal. They've been alive a long time, so you can't really like outwit them. Right. And so that's why you should trust Jesus instead. But they're not psychic. They can't Correct. read your thoughts. And the devil also cannot read your thoughts. Yes.
1: Yes, that's what and I was so taught growing be up. Be
0: careful what you say because, yeah.
1: Right, exactly. That, that's, there are limitations. Exactly. I mean, that was essentially our, a, a pillar of the demonology of the group that I grew up in. Limited, uh, unlike de- God, who can read, you know, the searcher of hearts. Uh, but mm-hmm. Satan does have little birdies uh, who could be potentially in in your house or in whatever sphere you're in, and carry that information uh, and thwart your plans. So, now,
0: do you believe? Do you believe in demons? Now,
1: I do. Really? I do. Um, Perhaps it's just a carryover. However, I have not demythologized the New Testament enough uh, in in my own theology to say that they're they're not real. I also believe in a a personal uh, devil or Satan or or whatever. Um, I think, yes, there is a... Similarly, as I believe in angels, I believe angels are real spirit beings. Um, I do tend to believe the the tradition that demons are fallen angels. Um, again, I, the, I've not actually interrogated that all that deeply. So, who knows? Maybe by the next episode, I will have deconstructed Satan and demons.
0: Now, see, I'm I'm fully demythologized on. A lot of the supernatural elements of biblical cosmology, including angels and demons. Oh no, angels um, either. Oh, I mean, but w- what's to what's what's to hold on to essentially? But not on not on the you know the existence of God. I'm still still there. No, that this idea of uh, supernatural supernatural beings who have um, individual personhood that are unembodied. Although I know that there are traditions that see angels as embodied. They're embodied, but with a different sort of body Mm. than, than humans. But that's uh, not particularly intelligible to me, but no, I've been with, uh, with Walter Wink on demons for, for some time, right. Demons sort of represent a uh, transcendent sort of chaos or, um, Essentially, like a like a kind of group spirit, or the 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 spirit of an institution, right, mm-hmm. or the spirit of a nation. Even the idea that there are, are forms of uh, sort of evil and fallenness that are transcendent of what a person wills, and they can actually be very difficult for a person to disentangle themselves from. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that the language of the of the Bible around demons and demonology can meaningfully um, describe. The sort of dynamics of um, just the the futility of of humans to enact the good in our own lives, right? Um, and I think I think just theologically you bracket God out from the the sort of cosmology or metaphysics that you can apply to other. N- sorts of being because god is sui generis right god is is utterly unique and distinct from from creation Mm -hmm. and so when you try to pause it in creation like oh also there are devils and angels right like i mean show me evidence of that like that's that's kind of where i am with everything right is uh you know show show me evidence of that let's let's find some empirical measurement by which we can say that such a thing exists. Um, And then if you're, I think if your heuristic is generous enough or credulous enough that you can start to bring in uh, angels and demons, then, well, I guess we also have to countenance UFOs and ghosts and, you know, all sorts of things, because I mean, a lot of people have reliable eyewitness testimony of those things too. If that's our, you know, if, if we're gonna set our standards at a place. So, you know, that's kind of where I've I've been for some time. Sure. And this is actually all very relevant. See, we we do this, we sort of play play uh play chicken on are we gonna like how are we gonna start these conversations out? And we're just we're not gonna play on anything. We're just gonna launch into it. I didn't know you were gonna talk about my shirt. Uh I didn't know that we were gonna move from the shirt to talking about demons but it actually is is super relevant to what we're talking about because we're continuing our discussion on the statement on Christian nationalism and the gospel. But our next several items, uh, you know, our last two episodes, uh, we've gone through, or three episodes? Our last several episodes. Our last several episodes have focused on Uh, First, sort of setting the stage, looking at their definitions and introduction, and then the first several of their affirmations and denials. And we're going to continue working through those. And the next uh, several points, beginning with uh, affirmation and denial number five, really touch on the nature of secularism uh, vis-a-vis the existence of the church. Or, you know, the secular versus sacred um, distinction, the extent or the nature of uh, theological claims, religious uh, commitments, and especially religious authority, right? Right. And so I thought we could begin this – I think it would be profitable to begin this discussion by looking at, like, what do we mean when we say secular? Uh, how is the phrase secular sort of um, understood in the, uh, you know, scholarly literature around religion as a lived phenomenon um, in society? So uh, do you have anything else that you want to say in setting the stage for the discussion or discussing uh, secular secularism or even what the word secular uh, kind of means in general usage before we start looking at how they want to uh, either define it or define it away.
1: Um, no, no, take it away. So
0: um, one of the most influential works on defining secularism or the nature of the secular as a, as a phenomenon or as a, a component of society in recent years has been uh, Charles Taylor's book, um, A Secular Age, which uh, many, many have begun reading, uh, few have finished. It is a long and repetitive book, um, very uh, extensive, 840, 874 pages, including the index and, uh, and all of the aftermatter. Um, so, you know, nice, nice thick book, um, extremely interesting. I did work through the entire thing over the course of several years. Uh, kind of pick it up, read a bit, put it down. Uh, I think it bears well that style of engagement because, as I said, he goes over the same material uh, in kind of from different uh, perspectives or bringing examples in and out again um, multiple times. So it it, it really does uh, bear well with that kind of long form, you know, reading. You don't lose the thread as much as you might expect. Um, but he begins with. You know, it's both a sort of um, a work of um, sociology of religion, um, philosophy of religion, but also history, right? He's kind of constructing from the Enlightenment, you know, reaching back before that. He, d- he does an examination of the nature of belief and religion in the Middle Ages, but largely the Enlightenment through uh, – probably about the 1960s 1970s but you know certainly well into the modern and approaching the postmodern era um, looking at the intellectual moves that made possible the existence of secular societies right like europe like the united states Um, But to begin with, you have to understand, like, what do we mean when we say that the United States is a secular society or that Europe is a collection of secular countries? And in fact, I mean, there are differences between the two, right? So he begins by defining kind of what he calls secularism one, secularism two, and secularism three and distinguishing between those. And uh, secularisms one and two are, are really obvious and he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on them. Um, because secularism three is what he's really interested in. So uh, secularism one is simply the like overt and enforced absence of religion in the public sphere. So you know, you go to you go to France today, and like famously, um, you can't have religious symbols in the public school system of any sort. You can't, you know, Muslims can't wear a burqa. To the beach, right? Because that is like, it's not just a matter of your personal, like, it's not just a matter of like our conception in the United States is kind of you can't enforce your religion onto somebody else. In France, it's an enforced secularism, right? Like, not like there are religious symbols that are so I, kind of partisan that they just simply are not allowed, right? And then similar to that is simply the so that's kind of an enforced. Um, almost what you would call a negative secularism, like we're going to enforce you have to live as though there is no religion. Right. And and then um, slightly less aggressive than that is the simple absence of um, particularist religious um, authority over a society. Right. But what what he's much more interested in as a philosopher and spends virtually the entire book on is secularism as a condition for the existence of religion or defining the scope or the nature of religious belief. And it has to do with like obviousness, right? There was a sense in which, you know, to look at um, early medieval figures or just you know, anybody living in a, in an early medieval um European society, the obviousness and the directness with which they held Christian belief was something totally different than today, because they did not consciously hold it as something that could be rejected, right? right. Like um there's a, a directness and an obviousness that kind of denotes the nature of the belief whereas because today we live in a religious marketplace and we understand that i can choose to believe or choose not to believe or choose to believe something else i can convert to some other religion um even if i'm raised in a very say fundamentalist um family or or community the existence of the other outside as an enemy still defines the nature of my uh of my
1: belief right in light of all of that, and I'm not, not going to get into to more, but my take is that when we look at the way that secular and secularism is used in statements like this, they sort of, they use number one sort of as a, as a specter or as a as a, a boogeyman, right? What we're battling against is this ardent anti-religionism uh, in the government, and that's like that's what's coming, right? So we have we have people right. who are trying to to not only so I would I would distinguish like one and two. Two is like the Baptist view. They come over and they're like, "Listen, we want to have freedom to worship. We don't want the state church." to enforce how we worship. And so that they adopt sort of a secularism number two, where we have freedom of conscience to worship how we want. And the state can't compel that. Number one is not only is the state not going to tell you how to worship, it's going to tell you that you cannot, at least in any public space. Right. Um, And so there's a a weaving in and out of, of secularism one and two in the way that people like, use them in these statements like that and they use number one is sort of like this is what's coming to get you if you don't fight back against it um you're not going to be able to believe anything you're not gonna be able to go to your church or hold any beliefs on your own therefore we have to fight right it's a battle between religion right and anti-religion um and number two just sort of like fades into the background where people like no, no. Like you can believe what you want. I just don't want the state to to force it on us and tell us what to believe. Does that sound accurate?
0: Yeah, precisely so. And yeah, because and and often the 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 fear is that claims to be proponents of secularism two are in fact masking right. a smuggling in of secularism one. Right. right. We talk about uh you know freedom of conscience and individual um you know right to you know you know your right to your religious freedom and so on um but in fact what we're trying to smuggle in is a society in which uh yeah nobody can be right and so look at debates about prayer in schools right right like that's kind of the the that kind of defines the battleground and so of looking at of these kind of um uh the the function of Religion as ordering the social order. Uh, Charles Taylor, and this is in his introduction, says, um, uh, the situation is totally different today. And if you go back even farther in human history, you come to archaic societies in which the whole set of distinctions we make between the religious, political, economic, social, etc. aspects of our society ceases to make sense. In these early In these earlier societies, religion was everywhere, was interwoven with everything else, and in no sense constituted a separate sphere of its own. One understanding of secularity, then, is in terms of public spaces. These have been allegedly emptied of God or of any reference to ultimate reality or, taken from another side, as we function within various spheres of activity—economic, political, cultural, educational, professional, recreational—the norms and principles we follow, the deliberations we engage in, generally don't refer us to God or to any religious beliefs. The considerations we act on are internal to the, quote, rationality of each sphere—maximum gain within the economy, the grade of greatest benefit to the greatest number in the political arena, and so on. This is in striking contrast to earlier periods when Christian faith laid down authoritative prescriptions, often through the mouth of the clergy, which could not be easily ignored in any of these domains, such as the ban on usury or the obligation to enforce orthodoxy. Right. So the idea that, that religion is its own sphere as opposed to dominant over all of life is already the establishment of a kind of uh, secular society or a secularism within society, right?
1: Right, right. And I think the people who authored this statement would agree with that, which is why they say things like secularism is its own religion, right? They say there's no such thing as true secularism. It really – it's just – it's just a version of religion. It, it, it has its own gods that you worship, its own liturgy that you perform, um, and so we're we're not saying that you know we're, it's the battle between religion and no religion. It's just the battle between which religion is going to be enforced in the public square.
0: Mm-hmm. And then to to Taylor's kind of secularism three, which he's most interested in, um, which is. That secularism kind of defines the nature of religious belief, which I think is necessarily and demonstrably true for, I mean, for everyone, including for the authors of this statement, right? In ways that I think that they are not really aware of, or at least uh, do not acknowledge and make sense of within their statement, Um I you know, this idea that we can go back to uh, the religion of the New Testament, quote unquote, or back to the church fathers or whatever. Um we really don't have the um the, the social or psychological capacity to even understand what the nature of belief was like in a pre-secular era. Like we are within secularism or we are in as taylor says a secular age right and that has um ramifications that we can't really internalize um that you know even i don't think i don't think charles taylor has really internalized what the nature of pre-secular belief and devotion um was like but the way that he frames that is Um, He says, in order to place the discussion between belief and unbelief in our day and age, we have to put it in the context of this lived experience and the construals, construals that shape this experience. And that means not only seeing this as more than a matter of different theories to explain the same experiences, it also means understanding the differential position of different construals, how they can be lived naively or reflectively. How one or another can become the default option for many people or milieu. To put the point in different terms, belief in God isn't quite the same thing in 1500 and 2000. I am not referring to the fact that even Orthodox Christianity has undergone important changes, e.g. the decline of hell, new understandings of the atonement. Even in regard to identical creedal propositions, there is an important difference. This emerges as soon as we take account of the fact that all beliefs are held within a context or framework of the taken for granted, which usually remains tacit and may even be as yet unacknowledged by the agent because never formulated. This is what philosophers influenced by Wittgenstein, Heidegger, or Polanyi have called the background. As Wittgenstein points out, my research into rock formations. Takes it's granted that the world didn't start five minutes ago, complete with all the fossils and striations, but it would never to it would never occur to me to formulate and acknowledge this until some crazed philosophers, obsessively riding their epistemological <laughs> hobby horses, put the proposition to me. <laughs> right, and so. So even the the nature of belief in God, even if the content of that belief or the statements that you make about God are the same, um, what, what Charles Taylor is saying is that because we now live in a secular age, um, because of the nature of having chosen those beliefs with the operative understanding that we might not have, that there are other options on the table, that even the nature of belief and doubt have themselves kind of changed from what most of Christian history would recognize.
1: Right, right. Right. Yeah. We, we simply cannot return to a pre-enlightenment epistemology in any regard, right? We just know too much about the world and how it works to go back. Um, you know, so to, uh, do you have more on that? Cause I, I think there's a, another quote from N.T. Wright that is going to frame a lot of what we talk about going forward, but I don't want to short circuit what else you might have to say about secularism.
0: Yeah well I, I not, nothing more from nothing more from Charles Taylor except to say you know hey if you have trouble sleeping read this book but um <laughs> uh the the only other thing to say that for me understanding of secularism and the the secular age uh that we live in uh i i interpret it all within uh sort of Bonhoeffer's framework of the world come of age yeah. and the, the way that he construes it, especially in the prison letters, but he's kind of working up to that over his latter, his latter career, is that God used the church to birth modernity. Right. And that's kind of incontestable, right? Like modernity, the Enlightenment, these things emerged out of the functions of the church, sometimes influenced by, you know, Islamic influence coming, uh, coming from especially the south of Spain, um, you know, kind of bringing Aristotle back into uh, Christendom and into Christian Europe. There's like, there's, it's, it's more complicated than just the church, but largely the church birthed modernity and has created a world in which the church no longer has to be in charge of all aspects of society for the smooth functioning of society, right? Right. And so for Bonhoeffer, we should see this as a providential gift both to the world – We've kind of established a world that can understand itself through scientific understanding, um, through um, the like concepts of human rights, uh, mutual cooperation, things like that. But also a gift to the church because now the church is freed from the pretension of running the world, and the church is free to be God's church in the world right. without trying to control the world, which requires the taking up of the sword – and and so on. And so uh, in Bonhoeffer's conception, uh, the world having come of age is um, a something the church has to reckon with. Right. It's not a, it's not it's it's off the table now. It's it's you know, there's nothing we could do to stop it, uh, but also should be received as a gift, both a gift to the world, um, but also a gift for the church that frees the church to be the church exclusively and not try to be the rulers of the world.
1: Mm. Yeah. Which I
0: think, I think the authors of this statement would not agree with that
1: framing. <laughs> oh no, they they, they certainly wouldn't. <laughs> um, yeah. So one other quote I think that uh, might set the maybe there's the philosophical side and and the theological side maybe on the other comes from N.T. Wright. Um, he's not talking specifically about this, but I think. It, it resonates true for this. Um, it's actually in, it comes from his book, um, Surprised by Scripture, Engaging Contemporary Issues. But he says, quote, uh, though the Western tradition and particularly the Protestant and evangelical traditions have claimed to be based on the Bible and rooted in scripture, they have by and large developed long-lasting and subtle strategies for not listening to what the Bible is in fact saying. We must stop giving 19th century answers to 16th century questions and try to give 21st century answers to first century questions. And the reason I bring that up is because as we read through these things over and over again, as I'm saying it now so that hopefully I won't sound like a broken record as we go through each affirmation of denial over and over again, the statements and claims made by the authors would be absolutely foreign to the, the Christians living for at least the first three centuries, right? And the passages of scripture they use to back them up are being used to back up statements that just cannot ex- exegetically be made to say what they're saying. Now it's true that these, these claims, they do fit within the context of a, you know, the, the magisterial reformers coming out of Christendom um, and trying to establish Christian States post um, you know Holy Roman Empire right um, but it's almost as if these folks believe that Christianity began at the Reformation right and so there's there's just an absolute lack of historical context with regard to the passages of scripture that they cite and as we've talked about before, they provide absolutely no exegesis. They just they they throw an onslaught of Bible verses to support a statement, hoping that nobody's gonna go back and say, oh, Wait a second, how do you get there from here? And when you realize that nobody for the first 323 years of Christianity is gonna read the Bible, these passages, and come away with anything resembling these particular affirmations and denials, especially the ones we get into today with regard to spheres of authority, um, Christian secular, the, the, the rule, the, the duties of magistrates, um, it's just so foreign. So, so to call it Christian nationalism, you you could call it maybe Protestant nationalism, reformed nationalism, um, But it's certainly nothing resembling, uh, and in many cases, directly contrary to the teaching and practice of Christ, the apostles, and the church fathers for the first three centuries that Christianity existed. You go back and read them, and they are going to directly refute what these – that doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, right? As you talked about, the, the world comes of age context change. I think you and I would agree that we don't necessarily want to go back, nor can we go back to a a purely first century Christianity, right? Or a purely pre Christendom Christianity that, that uh, certainly is not possible, may or may not be desirable, but to claim that this is rooted in, in, in the teachings of the Bible is just plainly dishonest. Um, and I think under, undermines the entire project because there's no willingness to to name and own that. Uh, as a matter of fact, they, they shroud it and say, no, this, this is just, this is biblical. Um, and there's no way that honest exegesis of the Bible leads to these conclusions anywhere before the Protestant Reformation. So I'll try to stay off that horse in each individual <laughs> article. Um, but I think it, it's it's an issue that is woven through and, and presents itself over and over again as you read through the affirmations in the bios.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I think we can get through the, the first one that we're looking at today uh, fairly quickly, and that's point five, the nature of Christ's lordship and kingdom. So touching – just directly on uh, everything that we've been saying. So to begin with the affirmation, we affirm that in addition to possessing the titles of Savior, Messiah, and many others, Jesus, the Son of God, who is truly God, is also the King of all earthly kings, the Lord of all earthly lords, and the lawmaker of all earthly lawmakers. He is the possessor of all authority in heaven and on earth. We affirm that as God, Jesus Christ is preeminent over all creation, sovereignly rules over all things visible and invisible in heaven, earth, and hell, and ordains all things according to the counsel of his perfect will for the good of those who are in him. In his mediatorial rule, Christ rules by his spirit and word through earthly authority, which he divinely has ordained to execute his will on the earth and to orient humankind toward himself. We affirm that Christ alone, through the blood of his cross, grants repentance and forgiveness of sins to reconcile sinners to his Father. So a lot, a lot going on there. Um, I think I will start with the last point, which is very strange to – I don't know. That last sentence is a strange addendum to the rest because right. it does not seem to be working on the same – along the same lines
1: as the rest. Like, who's asserting otherwise, <laughs> is my question.
0: Yeah, like, they, they obviously have something, some specific, um, you know, heresy or something in mind that they want to forestall. But it's its nothing that's in line with what the, like, every point of the rest of the paragraph is addressing. Right. It's just dropped in, like, oh, and also,
1: Right, right. Yes. Um, and, and the rest, I mean, a lot of that comes straight from the New Testament, right? So I know I said I wouldn't do this, but I, I want to <laughs> highlight the, the bait and switch that's happening here, right? A lot of that stuff comes straight from the New Testament. Possessor of all authority in heaven and earth, sure affirm that Jesus is preeminent over all creation, sovereign, you know, visible and invisible. Heaven, Earth ordains all things according to the counsel of His perfect will. All of those things come straight from Scripture. They they come straight from the letters of the Apostle Paul.
0: But what? And in in fact, in fact, it seems like it seems like they are just doing punch up on Scripture. Right, like they're they're taking it, and they're like, well, they could have mentioned and hell, right, right. yeah, you know, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, you know, we uh, and lawmaker of all lawmakers,
1: like they're just right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and so enough of it rings familiar that people who have you know read or heard the epistle, yes, 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 yes. slip. (laughs) But what (laughs) what they mean by this, and what Paul meant by this. Worlds apart, right? So the, we're saying the same words, but we're meaning very different things by them. Um, nothing in Paul suggests that the rulers ought to dictate Christian principles for the, the ordering of society. That, that's not the way that Paul goes about it. The, the, The authority of Jesus, nowhere in Paul's writing is that meant to direct or shape actual policy in the Roman Empire among rulers. Paul's not writing to rulers. Paul doesn't have any expectation that the rulers are going to read this and say, how ought I to govern as as a Christian, right? Now, again, that doesn't necessarily make it wrong, and, and we might say we affirm rulers who rule justly, and you and I would, in certain circumstances, with regards to you know human rights and the dignity and equality of all people, right? We would, we would affirm rulers who rule in a way that uh, upholds those things. But that's not what it meant when it was written and without some sort of explanation between what was said and how we got to what we mean here, it comes across as deceptive and potentially intentionally. So I don't know if maybe it's not intentional on their part. Maybe they, maybe they really think that that's what Paul meant. It's hard for me to, to believe that
0: no i suspect that they think that that's what the bible teaches and they'll just lean on romans 13 as their um as their kind of you know linchpin for that which see our last episode discussing romans 13 a bit but no the the specifically the language of um lawmaker for lawmakers right lawmaker is such a representative democracy type term right Right. right. But adding it in with King of Kings and Lord of Lords is, is doing some interesting work. But we know that, um, you know, Christian reconstructionists or theonomists, like they mean that quite literally. They, they want the lawmakers to be writing Christian law that benefits, you know, as this affirmation says, um, all do it ordains all things according to the counsel of his perfect will for the good of those who are in him right like we're talking law that benefits christians to the exclusion of others and that's that's what they want that's exactly what they mean um and it is not it is not a stone's throw of difference between that and the kind of philosophical um practice behind the adf Right. Um, Who, among other things, you know, litigates these uh, prayer in school um, cases um, and, you know, freedom of religion cases. They recently won the right for some businesses to uh, discriminate against LGBT plus people when it involves uh, expression. right? Right. Right. A Supreme Court case that came down at the end of this past term brought by the ADF. Um, who, you know, have explicitly said that they want to um, rule with the, you know, the sort of Christian vision of the 4th and 5th centuries. Right. Right. So so just right, right in line with, with what we see here. Um, Which is, we know, the 4th and 5th th- th- c-
1: centuries were famously, um, you know, democratic in nature and good <laughs> for, you know, people who were not wealthy landowning men. Right. <laughs> I appreciate the forthrightness of sit, coming out and saying that out loud, right? Because it's then it becomes pretty clear to say, "Well, yeah, let's let's look at that. How well did that work out for people who were not wealthy land owning men?" Oh,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, you, you do have to go to the Internet Archive to find that they did take it down off of their website.
1: Why? Why would they take that down? I just it, <laughs> I can't imagine how that might hurt their case. I, I,
0: I can only speculate. <laughs>
1: So, moving on to the
0: denial, and here's here's where like their invocation of secularism becomes very explicit. They say we deny any theology which would seek to segregate sacred aspects of life where God's word is authoritative and supposedly secular aspects of life where the Christian must operate by a standard other than God's word. Right? So that's almost explicitly from the sort of textbook definition that uh that Taylor gives. We deny any theology which claims that bringing God's word into the civil sphere is unwise, unfruitful, sinful, or anything other than fitting and required. We deny that Jesus' kingship and lordship are merely heavenly, or that his word is only authoritative over confessing Christians. And then a number of uh, scripture references, uh, as usual. Right. And, you know, in in a lot of ways... I agree with this, or at least I'm very sympathetic with this construction, right? The idea that you can kind of bracket out areas of life or that you get into a sort of fideism that says, um, well, God, you know, God's word is authoritative for me, but it's not authoritative for my neighbor or whatever. Like there are crude versions of that that I, that I do reject. And I reject, you know, the idea that, you know, Christians can participate in, you know, professions or, uh, in the economy and ways that they, you just, you just, you know, if, if you're a Christian and you're a CEO, what is your job? It's to respond to the, uh, impulses of the market. Right? Right, right. Um, and I think that just allowing yourself to become a servant of market forces or, um, you know, nationalism for the country that you live in, uh, things like that, um, I I agree with rejecting um that type of it's not it's what people commonly refer to as situation ethics which is to say that your ethics vary based on the situation you're in that's not what Joseph Fletcher's situation ethics is actually about but like that's what people uh you know call situation ethics but this idea that like your ethics are dictated by kind of the role that you're in um you know I think that there is a a, a version of that that is to be rejected right
1: right right Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, in other contexts, I have argued against very similar things, right? This idea that Christianity is only this individualistic, personal salvation relationship with God, right? It's like, I believe the right thing. So me and God are good. I'm going to heaven. How I live the rest of my life doesn't really matter, right? There's in a sense, I agree with the Christian nationalists, over and against this version, right. I I think, you know, we would agree that Christianity ought to influence and incorporate the various aspects of our life should affect the way that we work in our professions, the way that we conduct ourselves in society, that it is not just a private matter between me and God, but there's a a public and communal communal aspect of it. Right. So we, we likewise reject this, you know, hyper individualistic escapist, disembodied fideism which is what makes this also complicated right so so say yes we agree that that's not it but then there's also this other you know they use that to say well then that right. means that we ought to enforce this in the public square we were like Ooh. and specifically what we should
0: enforce in the public square is a sort of uh Legally enforced Christian supremacy.
1: Right. Right.
0: Right. And I think that precisely because we should be shaped by the thrust of the gospel message, that we should not enforce a Christian supremacist, uh, type of politics, but in fact, a politics that is, is maximally, um, uh, good for all right a sort of uh benevolent um right. you know the, the the position that i've come to or the way that i've come to describe my position is um you know because i kind of waffle with you know democratic socialist or social democrat or whatever um but i think the right term is egalitarian socialist right a, a form of socialism that is um that emerges out of my core conviction that people should be regarded as fundamentally on the same field, right? That there's like an anti-hierarchical right. sort of politics right. and socialism emerges from that. That we should be working to equalize participation and influence on and control over the gov- the functioning of the government, the laws, the legal system. That's just democracy, but also the economy, right? Right, right and an economy that's answerable to all people precisely because there are not some people who are over other people right right and all of that emerges out of what i take to be the central message of uh, of jesus yeah do we want to get into these scripture references
1: i don't in particular I, we i mean we've we've highlighted so Matthew 28 is Jesus, um, you know, all authority has been given me. Go make disciples of, of all, right? The Great Commission. Um, Acts Acts 2.36 is a, I guess, is a very strange inclusion based on my understanding of Acts 2.36. Um, which, let me just read that. Um So Acts 2.36 says, therefore, let the entire house of Israel know a certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah Jesus whom you crucified. Right. Because immediately preceding that in Acts chapter 2, verse 8, the disciples are saying, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right say, okay, well, now that you've done that whole like death and resurrection thing, we can get back to the business of establishing God's you know national authority on earth, making Israel great again. Can we do that? And Jesus is like, exasperated says, oh my God, you guys still don't get it. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> and that's what immediately precedes this, this message on Pentecost, as if Peter is now saying, now it's going to happen. Like, the authority of Jesus that Peter is talking about there, simply cannot be a nationalistic type authority based on what Jesus told Peter 11 days ago, if you take the biblical timeline, right? Uh, right. So again, it, it, just another one of those instances where the the scriptures they use to back it up don't do the work that they think that they're doing. We got the those things from... Um, the Pauline epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, about the supremacy of Christ. Uh, We've talked about that a little bit. I I don't particularly want to get uh, into Revelation at this point. Maybe at some point we do do a whole episode or series on um, the different millennialisms, uh, because that is at play here, right? A lot of these guys are post-mill. Right, um, a lot of these guys really do believe that the ushering of the kingdom comes as the world is Christianized, and that is how the kingdom comes into being, so maybe at some point we do that, we look at revelation in light of the various um millennialisms um pre a uh, post but I don't particularly feel like getting into that right now,
0: yeah. I I you know I'd be fine if we don't get into it for some time. Uh something else something else to point out though and this will come up a, a few times as we continue to go through the document but in th- they have been continuing to work on this statement in just little draft form um since it was posted which maybe reflects something about the ad hoc nature of this project, right? right? There's a statement on the, on the website that says that they're going to hold a conference in mid July to finalize the form of the statement. Um, We'll, we'll see if that either has happened or does happen uh, at this point. I have no word on that, but uh, all that to say that there they have added a couple of... So we're working from an earlier draft version of this. or not even a draft version. We're working from an earlier published version of mm-hmm. this. Um, they just continue to tinker with it. They're, um, they're making without updates. Without showing changes, right?
1: They're doing updates based on, based our, on
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> our, our interaction reader. with it. That's not true.
0: Yeah, they're like, Read, reader number two said... <laughs> um, But that to say... That since the version that we pulled from the website, um, when we began working on this uh this series of episodes, they have added a couple of passages to this, which really shows you it really shows you the nature of the theological reflection that's going on here, and that the scripture verses that are supposedly inform the construction of this statement are just post hoc add ons, right? Because they have not changed the substance of these of Article Five, but they do continue to find. Oh, here's another verse we could tuck in here. Here's another verse we could say we're drawing from here. Right? right. right. Like it. It really is uh, showing how the sausage is made, and it's not pretty. Um, so they've added a, a couple of verses um, from the uh, Old Testament. Um, one of which I want to look at just briefly, um, but I also can't refrain from from mentioning that. They've been continuing to add verses on as they've been working, but they have not corrected the issue where under the denial where it lists scripture, it says scripture colon, scripture colon, and then starts listing them
1: <laughs> so
0: apparently they're doing some edits, but they still haven't caught that right? right like the real slapdash effort on this uh right on on this statement but so they pull in Hosea, so they finally have some uh Old Testament support. Compared to the fairly uh, Pauline centric uh, list that was here before. And so the passage in Hosea chapter eight, they just cite verse four, um, but let's go, let's back up to two for some context. Uh, Israel cries out to me, Our God, we acknowledge you, but Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Samaria, throw out your calf idol. My anger burns against them. How long will you be incapable of purity? Right. So verse 4, which is the only one they cite, they set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. They make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Um, you can see why they pull that in. right? right. It's, it, the idea is that, that God cares who your king is. Right. Like that's kind of what that demonstrates, but it also demonstrates that there are that there are kings and princes who are working at cross purposes to what God wills. Right. Right. Like it's, it's really a, it's a kind of a perfect, um, Arminian Wesleyan, if not like open theist kind of a uh, passage to cite because it's like, God wants this king, but instead There's this king because they set him up. But also, you know, we've we've discussed Hosea in recent episodes, right? Uh, One of the early prophets who's critical of these kings who are anti-social justice, right? Like that's the critique of Hosea (gasps) is that these kings are corrupt because they're not following the social welfare laws, right? Right. Right. So you know you have that uh, that contextual understanding, Um, and then also realize in the context of the kingship of Israel that the idea of uh, of a king in the in the narrative of the history of Israel, the idea of a king is a concession. It's an accommodation. (laughs) Right. God is anti the whole king thing. Right. Right, which fits very, very ill at ease with this idea that. Oh, actually, no, God rules through your king.
1: Right. 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 Exactly. So my question then Go is, ahead. these kings that Hosea is talking about, can they rightly be described as uh, those authorities ex- that exist that have been instituted by God? <laughs> Are they a terror to good conduct uh, are they god's servant for your good or not right in other words right. if you have this romans 13 theology that this is the role of the magistrate and you have magistrates that clearly aren't this sometimes rulers are this and you have to obey and sometimes not and it really depends i'm getting cynical um which political party they belong to, whether or not, you know, the duty is to obey or the duty is civil disobedience. Um, yeah, it just, there's no coherence, uh, between those, those various applications of scripture. Right. Well, the statement
0: has more to say about, uh, civil officials and the source of their authority. Do you want to read, uh, Article number six. Article
1: six, the identity of civil officials and the source of their authority. We affirm that civil officials are God's deacons of justice. Therefore, they must obey his commands and rule under his authority. We affirm that all human authorities, including civil officials, possess authority only as it has been delegated to them by God and are accordingly accountable to him for how they wield their delegated authority in accordance with God's prescriptions for civil government as revealed in his word. We deny the authority of civil officials and documents to contradict. Is that, does it read the same in the, we deny the authority of civil officials and documents to contradict what God has said in his word or to govern beyond the bounds of God's word beyond the bounds. God's word has established for them. It's a mouthful. Uh,
0: And in the, uh, in the current, in the version currently on the website, that first one is it's just condensed a little bit.
1: Okay. We should read from that.
0: They just, they, they did a, did a second read and, 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 Remove some of the extra unnecessary verbiage
1: yeah and it's no surprise here that romans 13 uh, plays a leading role as the supporting scripture um but again as we just highlighted with the last one are civil authorities god servants of justice have they been delegated by god or have people chosen leaders without god's permission and approval like which one is it?
0: <laughs> yeah. And there, there's, a, there's a telling difference between the draft version – or it's not a draft version. The previously published version and the current published version. So the previously published version said, we affirm that civil officials are God's deacons of justice, period. The current published version says, we affirm that civil authorities are God's servants of justice who must know who their master is and what he requires of them. So, in a a way, um, kind of moving more toward the more sophisticated understanding of um, the nature of leadership that we're talking about, kind of implicitly acknowledging through that change that, well, we know that leaders aren't always, right? Right, right. But they should be. And, you know, the change from deacon to servant is a significant one, right? Because a deacon is... A kind of New Testament office of the church, right? That's a very explicit. I mean, it, they explicitly reject secularism, right? The distinction between religious spheres and non religious spheres of life. Um, you know, the previous denial was about that. But then to say that civil leaders are a religious institution, a religious body, right? Like they really are breaking down this, just the entire idea of secular government as uh, separate from the functioning of the church. Right. right? Because the deacon is a role in the church, and the president should be a deacon of God's justice. Right. But so they soften that, actually, in the revision to God's servants of justice who must know who their master is and what he requires of them, which, I mean, carries the implicit recognition that they might not, but that they must. Right, right. Like it's incumbent on them too. Right,
1: they should. They ought to. Right, right.
0: But no, it 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 should be. And you know, I I get so familiar with the way that Reconstructionists think about the church essentially ruling society that I sometimes fail to be shocked by what they're actually prescribing here. But this this construction of what a civil authority is. Um. Just imagine hearing that as a non-Christian, whether that's as some you know, just a, a non-believer of any sort, or a, a member of any particular other religion. Just this idea that, like you, you want, you want the United States to be a place where the the president is genuinely like the pastor in chief like like genuinely rule by church right well not, not I, sometimes the defense, I think I fail to be sh- not the pastor in chief not the pastor
1: because they, they yeah. don't want the the government to have but but at least you know theologically trained enough to know what is the the, the moral law that must be enforced through the sword right the, right they don't want the right. president to say who has church membership and who doesn't. Um, right actually so I don't I don't want to give them any extra ammo here um, but it it, they're omitting like a a great Old Testament proof text which states that the kings were to hand copy uh, their own version of the law right so they'd be familiar with it there's a Mm. I think it's, I think it's in Deuteronomy. I'd have to double check. Um, but basically it says like every, every king that rules is to sit down and, and handwrite a copy of the law so that they're so familiar with it. Right. Um, that sounds a lot like what they're, what they're getting out here. That you, you need to be familiar with so that you can rule justly because you're going to be held accountable by God for how you rule.
0: And, and of course, I, I, I can't remember if you mentioned, but that Romans 13 is the first first citation here, and then a number of other citations. Right, right.
1: Which, again, I, again the idea that Paul intended Romans 13 to be prescriptive for rulers it right. just so utterly fails basic contextual analysis. The idea that that there are rulers who are going to read open certain be like, what is is my job as a Christian ruler? Well, it's outlined here. Like, Paul is writing to Christians under the thumb, (laughs) getting them to behave under the thumb of oppressive rulers. It's just insane.
0: Looking at Article 7. This one is quite a bit different in the earlier published version than the current version. Do you should I read first of all from the current or from the the earlier one? Let's
1: just deal with the current. I, I you know let's see see what changes they've made in, and deal with it as it stands.
0: Yeah, because ge- generally the current is shorter. I think in most all of these cases, right? They they removed some of the excessive wordiness, right? So. So reading from the website as it appears at the moment, um, Article 7, The Duty of Civil Authorities. We affirm that God has armed civil authorities with the sword of justice to promote citizens' welfare without partiality by, one, writing and enforcing just laws that are, that are a terror to those who do evil, two, defending and approving those who do good, 3. Avenging victims of crimes with speedy justice and proportional punishments for evildoers. We affirm that civil authorities must ensure that the Church shall enjoy the full free and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. We affirm that civil authorities must discharge this duty without showing favoritism to or bias against any Christian denomination for their historic beliefs and teachings. We affirm that the government has the duty to intervene to prevent or stop any ceremonial practices that violate the moral law. We affirm that civil magistrates have lawful authority to punish civil crimes like assault, murder, rape, theft, fraud, man-stealing, and false witness, and to ensure proper due process through the civil courts, payment of liability for verifiably proven harm, and proportionality of punishment so let's let's stop there before we go into the denial because that's a very long affirmation. It is.
1: It is three paragraphs, actually.
0: It is, and some of those paragraphs are one affirmation and some are multiple affirmations. I think there's a total of six. we affirm statements in here. One. Five. So the first thing that stands out to me is the sort of um, restrictive definition. The sort of, you know, very minarchist or libertarian uh, influenced uh, definition of kind of the scope of government. Right. right? And it's primarily to um, punish people who have done specific wrong to other people when those other people or their families are there to sort of bring suit about it or prove it. Um, you know, there's this emphasis on payment of liability for verifiably proven harm. And so this sort of very minimalist, um, uh, definition of what, like what the, the justice system should, uh, take on anyway. And a lot of that, you know, they don't, they're not citing it necessarily, but a lot of that goes back to the application of some of the specific, um, jurisprudential practices of the old testament right like uh, you know the distinction between um if somebody is sexually assaulted in the city but does not cry out then it is assumed to be consensual um like th- those types of kind of you know ancient society rule of thumb methods for establishing you know Guilt versus innocence, or um, things like that, they really want to bring into um, sort of the contemporary uh, justice system, right? There's this real skepticism toward, well, there's a skepticism toward rehabilitative punishment Mm -hmm. or, you know, rehabilitative uh, justice practices, whatever. And also, typically, right, if they're leaning on people like David Barton, typically uh, skepticism toward prison. Right. Typically it's it's pay back the person that you have offended. You can't you didn't offend the federal government. Like we right. don't believe in that as a concept. You you offended and hurt some individual. So if you can prove that, then they get proportional punishment, which by proportional punishment, if you're thinking eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, then yeah, that's the kind of thing they have in mind.
1: Right. Yes. And I think one of the things that is conspicuously absent here, and it'll actually show up in a denial, so it's not conspicuously absent there but there's they affirm no role of the civil authority for any kind of social welfare for the citizenry right, right. the the Which the civil authority yeah yeah has has absolutely no idea has no role to protect against any kind of systemic exploitation right maybe you can get there through what they're saying but certainly um there's there's no role to to mm-hmm. I guess as the Constitution would say provide for the general welfare. Now I know there's debate over what that actually right. means, um, but it, it's it's merely using the sword in retribution, not any kind of vision mm-hmm. towards promoting a, a holistic good. Right? There's no duty of the magistrate to, for example. Um, Make sure that the the gleanings of the field get left, or that that debts get forgiven, or anything like that. Um, all of that is conspicuously absent. And then, in the denial, will be explicitly denied that the government has any role right. in that.
0: Right. So, it's, and so, speaking of those, you know, general positive um, things. But at one point, it is interesting to go back and look at the earlier published version because they they did a lot of example providing in the earlier version. And so they wouldn't just say, you know, wicked practices, they will specify some wicked practices. Um, So in the, their paragraph structure is different in the earlier one. So um, it's partially, it's toward the end of the second paragraph and, and all of the third, they start providing some examples. And so they say the civil authorities must discharge this duty, which is to ensure that the church has uh, full freedom, must discharge this duty without showing favoritism to or bias against any christian denomination for their historic beliefs and teachings this includes but is not limited to their teaching and beliefs concerning the immutability of biological sex the union of marriage as existing solely between one man and one woman and other historic christian teachings on sexual morality and you can see why i mean you can see why they mentioned that and you can also see why they took it out right right right. Because they mentioned it because that's actually something that's really bothering them at the moment. Right. Like they're really thinking about like in today's society, we're really upset that we're not allowed to discriminate against LGBT couples, right? Or whatever, right? right? Like they have these specific set of complaints. But then obviously you take that out because you realize, oh, wait, we're not supposed to be complaining about like today. Like this is a vision for once the Christians take over.
1: Right, right. Yeah,
0: like the idea that the Christian magistrate is going to discriminate against some churches because they are they hold the traditional position on marriage, like that's not that doesn't even follow. It's a non sequitur, right? Right.
1: Right. Yeah. One of the things I think that is interesting, I said that they one of the things that's interesting that they include in this, you know, they, they just want to drop it without anything else. That's actually sort of terrifying we affirm that the government has the duty to intervene to prevent or stop any ceremonial practices that violate the natural law which is pretty vague language however i mean mm-hmm. that i think that's the kind of thing that is used to to bolster um everything from what we talked about you know same sex unions perhaps as a ceremony, Mm -hmm. but also that can be used to shut down any public expression of religion. That's not Christianity, right? If you think of the way that ceremonial is often used and some of these guys have advocated for that, they would say you can practice privately, whatever religion you want, but there will be no mosques. There will be, No synagogues, there will be no public institutions to any religion other than Christianity. And this little thing right here, if if a violation of the moral law is worshiping any God outside of, you know, God revealed in Jesus, then Mm -hmm. that little line means that it gives the civil authority the right to actively discriminate and by use of the sword shut down any public form of uh, religion that is not Christianity.
0: Right. And so in the, in the current version that just, it just says um, has the duty to intervene, to prevent or stop any ceremonial practices that violate the moral law. Right. In the earlier version that we saved, the government has the right to intervene to prevent or stop. So hold on. So they changed right to duty because they wanted to strengthen that a little bit. But they, earlier they said right to intervene to prevent or stop any ceremonial, quote-unquote, religious practices. They removed the quotes around
1: the, – or they, they changed, changed religious, religious to, to ceremonial
0: ceremony. without the quotes. Mm-hmm. That violate the natural law, not the moral law, but the natural law and welfare of mankind. Including, but not limited to child sacrifice, polygamy, child exploitation acts of religious masochism, and so forth. (laughs) Which the, and so forth really, really hits you strange after that list, right? Um, which I think, I think that that is an, an eyeball onto the kind of QAnon adjacent, um, beliefs that they have about what's going on in the world yeah right like they think they think that there's a lot of this um child sacrifice and child sexual exploitation acts going on in the united states like i think they do believe that right but also the the, just not in their churches (laughs) yeah precisely uh in in uh every every only in their political opponents uh churches and Schools, public institutions, the basement of the Capitol building, you know. Pizza parlor. Ping pong pizza.
1: Yeah. Wayfair furniture.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so you see, um, so you see that element of their thought, which they, I think, wisely decide we should make implicit rather than explicit, um, in, in their edits. But also, I just have to highlight the move from, practices that violate the natural law and welfare of mankind changing that to the moral law it shows how slippery their thinking is right they don't actually like seriously consider these categories of natural law versus moral law because those are two distinct concepts right right, right. they're just using whichever one they think kind of sounds better and fits their rhetorical goals better and so they'll move from one to the other and as they added it like they don't care right hello listeners nick don from the future here it was at this point in our recording that we were interrupted by a tornado warning and alert to seek immediate shelter on thomas's end i'm happy to report that everyone is unharmed no damage uh but that ended our recording And we felt that that was a kind of a natural conclusion for our discussion. Hope that this has been interesting and instructive, particularly on the vision that the statement on Christian nationalism and the gospel has uh, toward uh, secularism over against the sort of rule of religion over all spheres of life. As always, we thank you for listening You can find more in the links listed below at our link tree. Uh, Feel free to join the Open to the Public Discord. As always, it greatly benefits us if you will leave a uh, review on whatever platform you're listening on. uh, Comment, uh, rate, all of that helps other people discover our uh, material. But thank you for listening. We deeply appreciate you. Contact us with any thoughts, questions, concerns that you have, and we look forward to continuing uh, again in two weeks, possibly continuing to work through elements of the statement on Christian nationalism and the gospel, uh, unless something else takes us away from that. But we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to All The Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right. All the Rage is recorded and produced by Thomas Horrocks and Nick Don Stanton-Rourke. Find more, including Patreon and an open-to-the-public Discord server, at the links in the description. The intro-outro music is Dweller on the Threshold by Nealor, used under CCBY license. See you next time!